Welcome to maybe the most jam-packed corner kick of the year. It's time for us to recap the final day across Europe of league play. And there were some surprising results, some unsurprising results, some new champions were crowned. And we've got a lot to get to. And of course, we'll eventually take a look at what our picks are for the upcoming uh, European finals. I'm Nathan Strauss, joined by a man who did not score a goalkeeper goal to eventually lead himself uh, into the top four, Nick Govinden. I did not score a a, a beautiful. I did not score a beautiful header to lead my team to the Champions League against Sam Allardyce last week. That is for sure. But Nathan, it is so good to be with you. Like you said, this is going to be a jam-packed episode. We have a lot to get through. I think my first takeaway from this weekend was that this was the first time in a long time where I think a lot was in the balance coming into the final day of the season. A lot of titles were still to be won. A lot of top four places yet yet to be yet to have been claimed. So I think it was one of the more entertaining last days all across Europe than I can uh, than I can remember. Especially on the Premier League side, obviously I think this was one of the less competitive titles that we've seen in the last couple of years i mean city had it locked up basically from like match week 22 or so i think we all wrapped our heads around the fact that it was going to be i mean cities. it was very similar to liverpool last season where it's like once they got rolling they never looked like stopping right. and even before it was mathematically secured we all kind of understood what direction that was trending but i think unlike last season uh, there were several more teams in play for the top four conversation. Yeah, I think this was certainly different from most seasons in that there were really sustained challenges for top four from more plucky underdog-ish sides like Leicester or West Ham, both of whom will wind up in the Europa League last year. Next year, of course, Leicester ended up spending the most time in the top four of any team except for Man City this season. and they're the ones that wind up um, on the outside looking in, in sort of a, a Brendan Rodgers disaster class. But I think if there's anything, and maybe this is where we can get started, I think if there's anything that we can take away from this season, it's that with VAR and with decisions becoming so heavily scrutinized, not just post-facto, but also during the games, every single point matters so much. And I think about this particularly for Arsenal, who... Were it not for VAR, um, if VAR had, you know, not existed and the calls had been made the way they were on the field, Arsenal would have finished with, I believe, 69 points on the year. And instead, Arsenal finished with 61. And that's the difference between Champions League and being out of Europe altogether, which is not to excuse what Arsenal did um, at all. But it is sort of to demonstrate the importance of, you know, really, there were five places up for grabs and six teams that could have grabbed them in the final day and it really took until the 80th minute for some of these places to be decided. It was stunning from the perspective of just how much changed and shifted in 90 minutes uh, on the final day of the Premier League season. Obviously all Liverpool needed to do was beat Crystal Palace at Anfield in front of their fans and they ended up doing it. So I think from a Liverpool perspective they you could tell that momentum was very much on their side and we could probably get into you know the impact that this qualification will have on, on Klopp and this team going forward, especially in the summer. I certainly was not confident that Chelsea could get a win. I thought they could get a draw against Aston Villa. Chelsea have not looked phenomenal as of late. Obviously, that big loss at home to Arsenal was kind of the turning point in the Champions League race. And Aston Villa ended up winning, and I would say deservedly, winning in front of their fans with Jack Grealish back in the starting 11. Uh, from that point forward, as soon as Villa took the lead, you saw some incredibly dramatic stuff in the Leicester and Spurs game. Obviously, Jamie Vardy finding a way <laughs> to uh, dive and will his team back into things against Tottenham. 
But in the end, uh, they just looked complete. They being Leicester just looked completely drained from their exploits in the FA Cup. And obviously that uh, really pivotal game away at Stamford Bridge following the cup victory. And I just think if you're for all of the craziness that we had this season from Spurs winning <laughs> six <laughs> six one at Old Trafford to Liverpool losing seven two to Aston Villa from David Moyes probably being uh, the manager of the season in my opinion and leading West Ham that were on the brink of relegation last season uh, into the European places this season we have a pretty standard <laughs> looking top four at the end of the day um, and I think it is because the gap in just quality between a squad like Leicester that has a lot of quality, but I would say not as much depth as a squad like Chelsea, as a squad like uh, Manchester United. And obviously, you know, Liverpool have had their struggles in terms of depth and defending this season. Uh, but in the end, they were able to draw from a number of key players in that in their final five. Jurgen Klopp called them cup games to try and seal top four. That I just think if you're looking at Leicester, who have for the second year in a row capitulated on the final day of the season and even before that had a kind of defining loss at home to a 4-2 loss at home to Newcastle. If you're Brendan Rodgers, you got to be thinking like, what signings do we have to make in the summer and what can we do to bolster our squad so we're not in this position again on having to, you know, be completely reliant on winning a pivotal game at the end of the season when our resources are stretched. Yeah. So I mean, thin. at the end of the day, it's still a great season for Leicester, given that <clears throat> I think they are a really well, well-run club. They obviously won the FA cup off of a Yuri Tielemans banger. Uh, cannot emphasize how much of a banger that goal was. Um, but I mean, they also had really bad luck this year. Like I'm sure they weren't planning on having to start Luke Thomas at left mid or left wing back for large chunks of this year. I mean, Timothy Castagna was out for a long time. Um, Ricardo Pereira. James Justin. Yeah, James Justin up. got injured in, what, December or January and ended up being out for most of the season. Um, Ricardo Pereira was still recovering from his ACL injury. Uh, James Madison missed a lot of time this year due to injury as well. And Jamie Vardy was out for, especially, you know, in the crucial stages of February and, and March, he was out with an injury. And so Kalechi Iannaccio, went on a great run of form, but I'm sure that's not what Leicester would like. And so for a team that's going to be competing in the Europa League now for the second straight season, I think it's, it's all about depth signings. You know, if they can, they've made some really shrewd transfers to Yunshu, Fafana, Castagna. All of these guys are really top class. And if they can keep hold of Tielemans and Ndidi as well, and Madison, of course, I mean, that's their starting 11 is Europe quality. It's just about getting the depth pieces so that they're not left to rely on basically academy products to produce in like the most key moments of the season. And that's something that comes once you have spent more years in and around Europe, like Leicester are now five years removed from qualifying for Europe for the first time. You know, it's time for players like Daniel Amarty, Christian Fuchs, who's leaving the club, Wes Morgan, who's leaving the club, you know, their departures should be opening up spaces for better players to be brought in. And they're so well run financially that they have the firepower to do it. And their scouting team has just been excellent as well. So I think of all the teams of Leicester, West Ham, Spurs, and Arsenal, the four teams that I would say were challenging for Champions League at some point during this year, I have the most the most faith in Leicester to, to make the decisions that will get them back there. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I think the just the foundation that they have at that club, and especially if you, you see the the celebration, we talked about this on last week's podcast with Caleb, just how connected their owners are with the vibe, the overall vibe and, and foundations of the team and, and what they need to do to improve both on the pitch and in their club infrastructure going forward. I think it, they have such a detail-oriented plan of how to run that club that I think they will be contending for several years to come, especially if Brendan Rodgers stays and is able to build on his work with that team and, and the core group. Uh, of course, you say that you say that now, and, and then he's going to sign for Spurs in like three days. But... Actually, I actually don't think that that's what's going to happen, but I do think that there's a possibility that it will. You know, Leicester, they were in fifth place. They, I would say they they didn't necessarily overachieve, but they definitely achieved, if that makes sense. Like, I think... No, this has been a brilliant season for Leicester. They won a trophy, right. which is, you know, if you were to ask any Leicester City fan 15 years ago when they were on the brink of financial collapse, like whether or not 
in like 2021, they would see themselves winning an FA Cup and also competing for a place in the top four against Chelsea and right. Liverpool. They would have never believed. No, I, I'm not saying that they what they did. I, I'm just saying their their yeah yeah their position is completely reflective of their quality. Like I, I like I think West Ham overachieved. I think Leicester achieved. If that's fair to say, looking at the difference mm-hmm. between those two sides, and of course Spurs getting into the conference by the skin of a Gareth Bale brace. Um, there was a lot a large portion of Sunday morning that that had me thinking that Arsenal were going to end up leapfrogging them, but. Alas, it was not to be, which I think is probably fair on the balance of things this season, but a man can dream. The question for Spurs, and we'll get into this when we have some uh, chat about, you know, off-season rumors and transfer stuff at the end of the show, is whether or not that beautiful Harry Kane volley in this match is going to end up being his last goal in the Spurs shirt. And obviously, you know, Gareth Bale's future is up in the air as well. It looks like he's more assured at what he wants to do he said after the game that he's going to wait until after the euros with wales to announce what his decisions are in terms of the future of his career spurs are at a real crossroads and i think they needed to get into europe just to sort of it's better to be in europe than out of europe if you're tottenham especially with the amount of expenses that they have now uh being a club that has significantly increased its value over the past four or five years or so but they're at a serious crossroads, both with Harry Kane and, as you indicated, in terms of you know finding a manager to take them forward. They also have a ton of debt. Remember, they took out that loan, and they're going to have to take out another loan to pay off the loan. So I don't know. I, I'm I'm less bullish on Spurs, and not just from the perspective of sort of a, a vengeant Arsenal fan. But yeah, I mean, I think the top four is is pretty fair on the balance of things. I think United ended up showing a kind of consistency that I didn't expect from them. Obviously, Liverpool did excellently to recover from those injuries. I mean, I can't imagine a scenario in which Klopp would have prepared to start Reese Williams and Nat Phillips in a must-win game on the last day of the season. Uh, and of course, Jeannie Wijnaldum, I think, deserves a, a big send-off. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Liverpool were undefeated in their last nine games of the season. Liverpool ended the season as the form team right. in the Premier right. League, which is kind of incredible considering, like you said, uh, the amount of talent or lack thereof that they had at the back and Nat Phillips and Reese Williams it has to be said Nat Williams uh, not Nat Williams Nat Phillips won the Anfield Raps embodiment of Liverpool award this week and I think that is absolutely deserved just considering the fact that if he were on this podcast right now he'd be trying to head both of us yeah I mean <laughs> I mean it's, it's 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 a cool situation too because he's very much like a championship quality player like I I mean, in so much as a bid was accepted for him to go to Swansea at the beginning of this season. And, you know, maybe we would have seen him in another world. We would have seen him compete for that playoff position against Brentford coming up this weekend. However, I think this guy talk about someone who and Reese Williams as well. But I think he has a lot more growth to do physically, though. But Nat Phillips, (laughs) Nat Phillips, (laughs) this guy talk about someone who. Every single game did everything he possibly could to ensure the best results for his team on the pitch. It didn't matter, you know, like how many bandages he needed to wrap around his head in the final game against Crystal Palace. There's obviously like that image of him like bleeding like a Trojan warrior uh, on the field on the last day of the season. I think is going to become iconic. Obviously, the the goal line clearance against Manchester United that keeps the game 3-2 to Liverpool the goal line clearance against Burnley. There's talk now that Liverpool aren't going to exercise their buyout option on Ozan Kabak. And I think that is solely because Nat Phillips has played so exceptionally well down the stretch here for Liverpool and and really all season long. Whenever he's been called upon, he's put in a 7 or 8 out of 10. And I think that is extremely commendable given that he was set to leave. Yeah, and of course, you've also got Konate coming in, which probably means that he will take the spot of Kabak as that third center back. Uh, I mean, this, I mean, I don't think Kabak did anything wrong necessarily. He just sort of got injured and never really got fully kicking. But I mean, I'm sure he'll end up leaving Schalke. But there's no reason for him to play in the Bundesliga two after you know going on loan to the then defending champions of of England. But Obviously, there wasn't anything to play for on the bottom end of the table, which is... Whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. We have to talk about Chelsea. Okay, yeah, we can talk about Chelsea. Because 
because obviously we're going to come on to them when we talk about the Champions League final. But they squeaked oh, man. into this top four in the dying embers of Sunday morning. And Nathan, how obviously, you know, Thomas Tuchel came in and we were all really impressed with the job that he was doing, kind of setting the foundations for how this Chelsea team were going to play going forward, particularly at the back. You know, they can see so few goals. They started slow on the offensive front, but we, I think, all assumed that eventually it would get going and we'd see a lot more goals from this Chelsea team. That has not happened. In fact, I would say that they've even gotten worse offensively. If you just look at, you know, comparatively, the XG between the Frank Lampard Chelsea teams and the Thomas Tuchel Chelsea teams, both XG and chances created and goals scored, those numbers are drastically different. And this is not me like trying to defend Frank Lampard, who couldn't set his teams up to <laughs> keep a clean sheet, even if he tried. But I do think it is a massive concern for Chelsea going forward, obviously on Saturday, but even for next season, if they want to contend, because if you can't score, it's all well and good, like building a good defensive foundation. I think you can, you can contend you know, with a defensive foundation. But I don't know if you can really, you know, compete at the top, sustain a title push without having a a real recognized goal threat. I mean, but yeah, but clearly this is just setting up for the nightmare scenario in which Chelsea go out and buy, you know, Holland or something for the summer. And then they come back and just stomp the floor with everyone. Because I, what I will say about Chelsea is that clearly, again, the foundation is there. And they've showed you know, in the post-Tuchel era exactly, um, or in the in the post-Lampard era, rather, exactly how good they can be. I was going to say. Think, yeah, we're not, not quite <laughs> there yet. We live in the Tuchel era. Yeah. But I mean, look, they beat Man City. They also got swept by Arsenal this year. It was it's sort of a weird, a weird season. And I think if they had lost and they had missed out and Leicester had held on, I think there would have been a lot of questions asked, um, you know, before the Champions League final, because obviously then they would have needed to win that game to get into the Champions League. I kind of think that this, you know, even though they did qualify in fourth, they are just going to go out and spend more money and become even better. I'm a little scared, right? Like, because they have the funds. Like, Timo Werner can't just be shit forever. You know, eventually some of these chances are going to go in. They've got the youth system. They can, they're basically, they, they can fund their transfers through the sale of their sort of, you know, squad players and Man, I don't know. I'm just a little scared. So they will be fine. I, I I do not weep for Chelsea. Yeah, I don't either. I just think it's interesting that Jorginho was their highest scoring player in the Premier League this season. <laughs> and that's solely because he was taking penalties for them. I'm not worried about, you know, the prospects of Chelsea Football Club on the pitch going forward next season. I think they will actually end up contending. They definitely need to sort out what they're doing going forward, whether it's, you know, we're being reliant on Timo Werner, being confident that he can produce the goods eventually next season, you know, with a full preseason with the club. What is going on with Kai Havertz? What is his actual position in this team? Is Christian Pulisic a starter? Is he better coming off the bench? You know, they're obviously looking to move on from Tammy Abraham and probably Olivier Giroud. So maybe it is, you know, they go out and surprise us all and sign Erling Holland, or they do some deal with the devil and they sign Harry Kane from their rival in, in Tottenham. I think that's highly unlikely. And I think it's funny that people assume that, <laughs> I mean, they, they, that Daniel so Levy would they ever... They haven't done business, but yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think they've done business in at least 15 years. I'll tell you a story of the last time Chelsea tried to do deal, a deal with, with Tottenham, and it was Luka Modric. And Chelsea were the highest bidding team for Luka Modric by quite a bit, Daniel Levy still refused to sell Modric to Chelsea and sold him to Real Madrid for less money. So I don't think there is a chance that Harry Kane would end up at Chelsea, just considering where Daniel Levy holds that club in terms of you know negotiating with them. Yeah, I mean, no chance. I mean, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there are about three or four strikers in the world who would make this Chelsea team better. And I think that they'll probably try to bid for at least two of them. You know, especially as the finances of Real Madrid are sort of in doubt right now. I think they will be just fine. Do we want to jump ship a different league, perhaps? You can pick, the, you, you pick which country we travel to next. I mean, yeah, let's wrap up our conversation about 
La Liga. And I think we have to give some props to Diego Simeone, who we have, I think, been a little bit more critical than most people of on this podcast. I think you in particular are quite critical of Diego Simeone. And I think you just have to commend him for the way that he has sort of stuck to his principles and guided Atletico Madrid to a second La Liga title since he has taken over at that club. I think Luis Suarez scoring the two crucial goals in the two final games of the La Liga campaign were obvious written the stars moments. Uh, Obviously, it rounds off the season with 21 La Liga goals for Atletico Madrid after being cast aside from Barcelona. I think they've by far and away been the most consistent team It'll be interesting to see what they can do next season. However, I think for a lot of these players who have stuck by Simeone uh, through all of the heartbreak in the past few years, you know, going out, uh, losing the Champions League twice, obviously Carrasco and Koke and several other players were part of that team. Saul were part of the, the team that lost to Real Madrid the second time in the Champions League final, coming up short in La Liga multiple times going out of the Champions League in not so phenomenal fashion to Chelsea earlier this season. I think it's it's just impressive that the the dude is stuck by his stuck with his guns and it's yielded results for Atleti. I think I'm critical of Simeone because first of all, he's the highest paid manager in the world. And I think a lot of the times his teams just buckle under the pressure. And I think there were times this year where it looked like Atleti was going to right? Like it looked like, first of all, they were playing with one of the smallest squads that I've ever seen, not just amongst like a title contending team, but like any team ever. Like they literally use like 17 players throughout the entire season. And yeah, I know. Right. I think COVID and the Trippier ban really screwed them up. Right. And not to mention the fact that like the players who they brought in just like Kondogbia was ass this year. Like not to not, I don't want to mince my words or anything, but like this man made 30 appearances, no goals, no assists, a 6.5 average rating. Like I know, it, I know goals and assists aren't necessarily his, uh, his forte, but he, <laughs> it's like the, the guy, they were playing with what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven players on the bench in a league in which you could carry nine. I think it's impressive what they did. I think Simeone is an excellent manager when what he does works out. And this time it happened to work out. And I think, you know, you look at Mario Hermoso as being one of the most improved players in Europe. And then you have, you know, I would say the objectively the most improved player across Europe this year is Marco Sirente. So I'm not sure how much of this goes to Simeone and how much of it, like, I'm not sure how much of it goes to him himself as like a character and how much goes to his ability to get the best out of his players. But I do think that it's good for La Liga that Atleti won. I think I would much rather see them than Real Madrid lift the trophy. Maybe they shouldn't have been underdogs. They have the best goalie in the world, but it's it's weirdly a feel good story. I think. Here's the thing, at, at, <laughs> and I kept saying this at the end of this La Liga campaign, we were trying to give away the trophy. It felt like no one wanted to win the league, and I think Atleti just by sheer force of will and determination, by not slipping up the most, ended up. And there's a great piece in the Athletic that you can read where it kind of. It talked about how they weren't comfortable being a team that was, you know, 10, 12 points in front of everyone else. It actually became that when the La Liga title race got closer, they got far more comfortable with their situation and started to bunker down the hatches and play a lot better. And Diego Simeone switched uh, to a back three in order to accommodate that. So I think that's that's kind of says a lot about their mentality in sort of a two-faced way. And that when they were far ahead of the pack, they were feeling less comfortable than when they had to get, you know, down and dirty and see this thing out. And I think that that's quite interesting. And I think that speaks to, you know, a lot of the traits of Simeone and kind of what you were talking about in terms of, you know, maybe this is down to him getting the absolute most out of these players at critical times. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Real Madrid did their best to, you know, lose as well um, on the last day of the season until Luka Modric and Karim Benzema rescued them um, in the last five minutes, which I think is a pretty good metaphor for how Madrid's season went on the year. I mean, you're looking at a Real Madrid team that started a 19-year-old academy player at left back on the last game of the season. Like, really dire straits for them, both because of injury, but also because of an unwillingness to play guys like Isco 
uh, a lot of injuries and, you know, really poor transfer policy. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're Zinedine Zidane, I totally understand why you'd want to walk away at the end of the season. Like, he has nothing else to prove as Madrid manager. He's won everything, including the Champions League, multiple times. You know, this second spell for him at Madrid has not been fruitful from both a transfer perspective. He's probably not gotten the players in that he wants purely because of Real Madrid's financial situation. And also they haven't, you know, they won La Liga last season, but that wasn't really, you know, a, a campaign in which they're playing stunning football. If you're Zidane, now is the time where you can, you know, step aside and potentially move on to another project without being seen as a manager who's overstayed his welcome and is, you know, now not producing on the pitch because of the infrastructure of the team being so poor and the club being so poor and not having the finances to improve on the field. And I, I get that they're bringing in David Alaba on a free contract. So that will improve things somewhat, especially at the back, you know, seeing as Sergio Ramos struggled a lot with injuries this season. But if you're Max Allegri right. <laughs> and you're thinking about <laughs> taking this job, I would be extremely cautious about, you know, taking over an aging squad with players, you know, who still have, you know, clearly still have a lot to give in Karim Benzema and Modric and Kroos. But also, like, how do you go about fixing Eden Hazard? What do you do about Rodrigo and Vinicius, you know, players who in, in short sparks have shown that they have quite a bit of talent, but have never seemed to be able to do it consistently? What do you do about players like, Ojuit Sola, like Fede Valverde, players who, you know, were supposedly supposed to be like the 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 new blood of Madrid coming through, but they haven't really quite produced in the way that I think Madridistas would have wanted them to. I think it's it's a really precarious and interesting position. It's kind of a in, in a morbid fashion, I'm interested to see where they navigate this situation. Yeah, and I mean where Madrid are at right now is definitely a project. It's not I, like I know that their players who are, let's say, aging overperform this year. But players like Modric and Benzema and Sergio Ramos, who you know is missing out on the Euros because of a persistent injury, they can't keep performing at a La Liga championship level um, forever. And maybe Benzema has two more years in him. He's only 33. But Luka Modric is 35. How many midfielders do you can you honestly say can stay world class past the age of 35? Because I can't think of really a single one. Maybe Andrea Pirlo for a year or two. But, but even, even then, then he, was, he, was, yeah. he was supported by like Arturo Vidal right. and right. Claudio Marquisio. You, you just can't like physically, you just can't do it. And don't get me wrong, Modric could very easily, you know, play two or three years in sort of the um, doing what Barcelona did with Xavi and Iniesta, where, you know, they he gets 60 minutes every two games or 90 minutes every two games, and they sort of really monitor that. But I think Madrid have a thin squad. I think Madrid have overspent massively in the last couple of years. We know how much debt they carry as a team. And I think someone needs to come in with a real vision. And I think they need to be prepared to, to sell before they buy again. Players like Asensio, players like Isco, even players like Marcelo, Modric, etc. Like, they are not going to be the ones who are leading this Madrid team to their next illegal title. I don't know. I think they're a squad that is uh, deeply in turmoil. Yeah. Shall we move on to Italy and talk about Serie A's final day, which I think was, you know, a little bit less dramatic. However, we were all, I think, anticipating the comeuppance of Super League villain <laughs> Andrea Agnelli, who is the, uh, the president and CEO of Juventus. Uh, and it looked for a second like Juventus were not going to make the Champions League. It looked like Cristiano Ronaldo and co. were going to be playing in the Europa League, having finished fifth in, ironically, Andrea Pirlo's <laughs> uh, first season of management, which I think has been a real train wreck from every perspective. They did just sneak into the Champions League following Napoli's draw with Hellas Verona, in which Napoli headed wide in the 90th minute uh, preventing them from winning the game and getting a spot in the Champions League and Gattuso's final match in charge. Nathan, this really sucks. I think we were all hoping for karma to roost in the form of 
Juventus playing Europa League football next season. They will be in the Champions League. I think all of the question marks that Caleb and I were talking about last season uh, from a Juventus perspective and in terms of where they go with this squad, kind of a very similar position to Real Madrid, except I think even worse if you look at the composition of the team and their infrastructure and who they have as a coach in Pirlo. Uh, I think a lot of that remains unchanged. Juve were probably the biggest underperformers of any team in Europe this year. I think that's fair to say. Like, I think Juve finishing fourth um, and finishing 13 points off the lead um, is probably worse than PSG finishing in second. It's worse than Arsenal finishing in eighth. They looked like a team that was managed by a guy with no managerial experience. And that's exactly how they played. I mean, I watched a couple of games of theirs this season. um, And then I watched most of their European games, but they're flat. You know, they are not dynamic whatsoever. And you think about how stark a comparison this is to the sort of heavily stylized teams of the last decade from Juve that we've seen. I think they're another team that is really heavily aging, even for even for Serie A. Um, and I think they as well have problems. And I'm not sure that they have the finances to fix it, especially coming in fourth this year. Yeah, I think Cristiano Ronaldo, it looks like he'll be staying on, especially with them being in the Champions League. But they're paying him an absurd amount of money. And that is clearly that is clearly detracting from what they're able to do to rehab this squad. I think if you're looking at bright spots for Juventus, look no further than Chiesa and Kulusevski, who have really been the explosive talents that Juve needed in order to propel them into another season of Champions League football. But other than that, I think it's looking pretty dire over there in Turin. However, let's move on to a situation that is not dire. In fact, it is quite joyous in league. Nathan, we have talked at length about Lille's miraculous push for a league uh, title, the fourth in their history, and they did secure it with a win on the final day against Angers, and they lifted the La Liga trophy. It seems like this Lille team is going to be absolutely gutted (laughs) in the transfer window. Uh, It looks like uh, players like Bubakari Samari will be moving on to Leicester. There's obviously been talk about the futures of Jonathan David and Sven Botman. uh, And even their manager, Christophe Galtier, will be moving to OGC Nice at the beginning of next season. But Nathan, let us just speak in the now about how incredible this was from a Lille team that I think internally in terms of you know bankruptcy and all of that fun stuff have some real issues to solve off the pitch and this is one of the more miraculous title runs that we've seen in quite some time. First of all I think anytime a team wins Liga and it's not PSG it is like inherently a Pyrrhic victory like you saw what happened to Monaco Um, in the years following their title win, including nearly getting relegated under Thierry Henry um, and their whole managerial saga. So I do think this Lille team is going to be ostensibly sold for parts. I mean, they've got so many commodities. Fabrizio Romano confirmed that Mike Magnan is going to move to um, AC Milan today. This team is so weird. Like, just looking at the way they're composed, like, Burak Yilmaz as a 35-year-old, becoming like the greatest goal scorer of all time for like one year. It's really kind of, it's really pretty funny, but Jonathan David um, is, I think a really talented player. Uh, And, and Renato Sanchez, I think still has a lot of resale value and he was actually pretty good this year um, in a different role than how we've normally seen him. So I think congratulations are definitely in order. It's not the kind of performance that I think will ever be seen again from Lille or at least not for a very long time. Well, I think it, or wherever this dude, Luis Campos, who's the man who discovered Kylian Mbappe for Monaco goes, because I think he's clearly someone with a knack for finding talented gems. And this is a guy who I think if we see him outside of Liga in the near future is going to do a lot of great things as a sporting director for a team. So look out for the name Luis Campos going forward. Yeah, certainly. And I think PSG well, they are perennial contenders. I think they've got some some big business to sort out. Obviously, they've locked down Neymar for the next. Kylian Mbappe is, I think, the biggest question mark in the transfer market for this coming summer. Uh, is that fair to say? I think he will stay. It's just interesting that we haven't heard a lot 
about like teams actively trying to pursue him. And I don't know whether or not that's because Holland is way more obtainable for a lot of clubs. And especially, you know, Kane now making very public making very public signs that he wants to move. Maybe that's bumped Mbappe down the list of several teams. I just think that you look at PSG, they've been a lot more realistic contenders to the Champions League in the past two seasons. And, you know, they it's not like they in the Monaco season where Monaco won the the league in, in 2017, I think they really got like outpaced by that Monaco team. I don't think they ever really got outpaced by Lille. Uh, Lille won this by the skin of their teeth. And I think the Pochettino project is one that takes a few years to get really up and running in order to see its full potential, as we saw at Spurs. You know, maybe another a full season under Pochettino, and we'll be seeing the the fruits of his labor at this club with Kylian Mbappe on board. Yeah, and I think after a certain point, it's like really, you know, if you're if you can get Holland for 120 mil. Is it really worth paying 200 mil for Mbappe? I, I'm not sure what the answer to that is because I'm not the sporting director for a big team. But I think that there is certainly an argument to be made for uh, for Holland to be the better commodity for teams that are looking to buy, of which I think there are about five teams in the world. You think about you know Chelsea, United, City have a striker um, gap to fill. And then obviously you've got the perennial uh quote-unquote powerhouses of Real Madrid and Barcelona, neither of whom I think are really equipped to spend. But when has that stopped them before? Shall we wrap things up by heading on to our predictions for the Europa League and Champions League finals? Let's do it. So I think we can start by saying that United are going to smoke Villarreal like for nothing. Okay, uh, do you think this? Yes, I do. I 100% think Are you just? Are you just angry that Villarreal knocked out Arsenal and you want to see them get destroyed and you also want to see Unai Emery cry in the Europa League final. I wouldn't mind seeing Unai Emery cry in a Europa League final but United put... Why? He seems like a lovely man. Yeah, no, actually I don't have anything against Unai Emery really but I think United are just they've been the best team in the Europa League all season and I think I would have more faith since, since dropping down and I think that I think I would have more faith in Arsenal playing them in the final than I do with Villarreal. For me, it's just been funny seeing all of these United fans pretend like they care <laughs> about the Europa League. <laughs> no, you're because they don't need to win. They've, they've got Champions League for next year. You think they give a shit? No, they don't. Also, like they know it's so far beneath them, and they know that they've really underachieved when it's come to Europe this season. Like Liverpool, without center backs, ended up beating RB Leipzig over two legs, and RB Leipzig were the team that knocked United out of the Champions League in the group stages. So I think it's just, you know, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can deliver a trophy, it's, it'll be his first trophy as a Manchester United manager. Um, so I think that is significant. I think it's interesting that he's rested a lot of players recently. If you look at the lineup for the Wolves game, it was almost a complete uh, rotation. I think United will win this game. I do think it'll be a pretty comfortable victory for them. But I also think, and this is, you know, I'm clearly biased when it comes to them. I also think it doesn't really matter all that much, to be honest. (laughs) Like, clearly United's ambitions do not lie in the Europa League. But if Ole can secure them, their first trophy in four years. I suppose that is significant. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's a better manager than we gave him credit for. I think we sort of talked about that back in February or so when United really looked like they were finally there to stay. Um, but Yes and no. Because I'm still not sold. I mean, okay, actually, I, he is not a tactician. What he is is clearly an excellent man manager. And I think there is definitely a place for that in the modern game. No, I think that's definitely true, especially given the quality of that United team. It's not like he has to overcoach players with the ability of Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. I do think that he has kind of been exposed recently with the absence of Harry Maguire. And that is the interesting thing coming into this game is the fact that I don't think Maguire is going to be fit and ready to play this game. It'll probably be Eric Bailly and and Victor Lindelof at the back. So maybe Eric Bailly playing against his old club, by the way. In Villarreal, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they approach this game from a structural perspective. I'm sure we'll see McFred, Fred and McTominay, and Bruno Fernandes ahead of them. Probably Pogba on the left, Mason Greenwood on the right or at striker, probably on the right, and then we'll see Cavani up top. 
I think I just think they have enough firepower to get past Villarreal. Yeah. They're not like Arsenal, where well, like it was impossible for them to score a goal <laughs> against this team. Villarreal, I think they're also struggling with injuries coming into this game. Uh, they did play particularly well against Real Madrid, except Carlos Baca really was just truly terrible at putting away chances for them. So I wonder if Unai Emery will stick with him or he'll go with, you know, Gerard Moreno uh, up top and not in a more withdrawn role. Maybe throwing a little Paco Alcacer in there somewhere. It'll be interesting because Unai Emery is the master of the Europa League. This is his kingdom. He's won this trophy so many times. But I just think it's a it's a bridge too far to ask him to uh, find a way to find a way to beat this United team. We have seen some surprise results in Europa League finals, but not in finals involving uh, United. I, I will never forget. I think maybe the worst final that I've ever watched, definitely up there with the 2016 Euro finals, um, was the Ajax United final. Um, of Mourinho fame but yes I think we can comfortably agree I think United win this one you know three nothing or four one I think it's a, a pretty big and comfortable margin of victory um, which of course means it's going to end up finishing like one nil um, but shall we move on to talk about a match that we both agree on as well in terms of Chelsea versus Man City let us discuss because I think this game is incredibly interesting I also think this game is going to be incredibly boring. It's going to suck absolute dick. I'm no offense. It's going to be so, so terrible. It's going to be extremely boring if the meetings between these two teams in the past few months indicate anything. It's going to be an incredibly cagey tactical battle for the first 70 minutes. And maybe the final 20 minutes will see some excitement if one team really needs to go for it. But... I think the interesting thing is that Guardiola and Tuchel's styles, particularly this season, seem to really cancel each other out. I don't really know what it is, you know, on the on the tactic sheet that does it. I do think Tuchel kind of sets out to nullify the middle of the pitch. It'll be interesting to see what, having lost him twice now, what Pep Guardiola does uh, in his team selection to try and combat the the really defensive capabilities that Tuchel has displayed in their first couple of meetings man this game just has the vibe of two coaches that are so tactics heavy that they're going to try and play nine-dimensional chess with each other and it's just going to lead to a lot of midfield possession and balls being lost canceling out it's going to be a very zero-sum game so yeah this game has big like 1-1 goes to extra time and finishes 2-1 vibes to me Um, I do think City wins I think especially if Mendy ends up not being fit, I, I I don't think that Kepa is necessarily who you want starting in the biggest game in the last, what, five years or seven years for your club. Yeah, I get the sense that there's going to be a whole lot of midfield possession for Man City, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the FA Cup game was won by uh, a long ball through the middle that Hakim Ziyech converted. And in the second game, it was a, you know, Marcus Alonso shaft shot that ended up winning the game at the Etihad for Chelsea. I do think, you know, there is a world in which Chelsea, you know, survive for 70 minutes and then they end up hitting City on the break. And maybe Christian Pulisic scores a, wouldn't that be something for American soccer if Christian Pulisic scored the winner in a Champions League final? That'd be insane. But I think there is, there is a world where I think Chelsea can outlast City defensively and carve open an opportunity to uh, to scrape a narrow win in this final. But that's the only way I see Chelsea winning, really. I don't see City uh, not scoring in this game. I do think they will eventually find the back of the net. It'll be interesting to see if, if Pep goes strikerless again. I think certainly our friend and co-host Caleb Rhodes believes that is the case. In fact, he texted us before this show. And he says that his quick take on the Champions League final is that Tuchel gets the lineup wrong, which we discussed in the FA Cup podcast last week. Pep starts without a striker, so probably De Bruyne up front or maybe Foden. Chelsea score first, but City ultimately win 3-1 in 90 minutes. So I think he is very much in line with with your thinking, Nathan, that City are just going to try and, and dominate this game from a midfield perspective, uh, especially with that you know Pep Guardiola trademark false nine and try and carve opportunities through Chelsea's back line. I do think Antonio Rudiger has been immense down the stretch here for Chelsea. 
but fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, Marcus Alonso scores against me. Fool me three times, I don't think that's going to happen for Pep Guardiola. I think this is the time where he finally gets it right in the Champions League and wins the first time in 10 years. Yeah, I think so as well. I think this. I think City win, I think it's not going to be a high-quality game. But here's the real question, though, is do we think it is less enjoyable to watch than the last All-English Champions League final? Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, again, very low bar. I think the problem with that Champions League final was that it happened so far after, or so long, it happened so long after the actual season ended. Like, the actual season ended, and then, like, two and a half, three weeks later, that Champions League final happened, and it was, like, incredibly hot in Madrid. Liverpool and Spurs both looked pretty tired. Obviously, like, the most solid penalty in, like, the 30th second of the game pretty much decided the match. Like, there was no way Klopp was going to let Spurs back into the game because uh, he was trying to finally, you know, win the Champions League. I do think this game will be a little bit more exciting. I think the last, like, like I said, the last 25, 20 to 25 minutes, depending on who is leading, could just end up being just an absolute sh- shootout. Like maybe Tuchel throws on Callum hudson Adoy, Giroud, Pulisic, Havertz is on the field. He just pulls a Koeman and tries to throw out all the attackers at once to try and get something from this game. Because I don't think he can rest on, you know, the triumvirate of Mount Pulisic and Werner to try and do something in this game. I think he needs to be a little bit more forward-thinking in order to combat whatever Guardiola comes up with in this game. I think it'll be interesting to see who Guardiola starts. I think very very likely we could see a front line of of Foden, De Bruyne, and Mahrez. I think Sterling could probably sit this one out on their come off off the bench. I don't know. I think, like you said, it'll be extremely cagey. It'll be extremely tactical. Do I think it's going to be more boring than Liverpool-Tottenham? I think that's impossible. I I am inclined to agree. That game was so terrible. If it weren't for the fact that I sort of just wanted to see you happy, you know, (laughs) I think I probably would have stopped watching. But yeah, that game was uh, pretty terrible. I do think Uh, it's a similar situation, though, where if City score first, Pep Guardiola is going to be like, all right, we just can't lose the game now because it's been so long since he's won the Champions League. Obviously, City have been built for this moment to finally you know, get their hands on that trophy after all of the investment over the past 10 or so years. It could be a case of if City score early, very much the same scenario where they just try and lock it down in the middle of the field and keep the ball as best as they can. Chelsea have ways to combat that in the form of Conte in the form of Mount being a very good presser in the form of Pulisic being a very good presser. Werner, obviously, very, very agile, very, very good off the ball. I mean, we we could end up in a similar position as we did in 2019, you know, depending on who scores first. Yeah, I agree. Should we talk a little bit about what we expect this offseason, maybe for our respective clubs? Yeah, I wanted to get your take, Nathan, on since we haven't spoken in podcast form in quite some time. I wanted to get your take on the future of Harry Kane because I think this is a player who I think you have a lot of feelings about, very conflicted on, obviously Tottenham player, so you're inclined to not like him. I think you also don't like him for dirty play reasons, which you've outlined on this podcast before. I just want to get your take on where you think his future lies from a completely, from an Arsenal perspective and also, you know, put your punditry out on as well and, and explain to me like where you think you know the Kane saga ends this summer. So my first thought is that let me preface this by saying that I think what United need most in order is a center back, a center mid, and then a striker. But it would be very You don't United. think they need a right winger? No. No. They've got Martial who can fill in. They've got Greenwood who can fill in. They can slant Fernandez out to the right. There's I, they have options. They've also got they've also got a Madiallo. They have like infinite players who could play right wing. But it would be very united for them to go out and spend a ton of money on the best English striker in the game. And I think that of all the teams that could sign Harry Kane, United are the one that I could see happening most. And if it's not United, I weirdly think it's going to be Man City. They're the only two teams aside from Chelsea who can afford him. I don't think he wants to stay, even though he might love the fans. Spurs are really shit like really shit 
and not just in terms of like their club is not successful. They are serial losers more than any other team in the <laughs> play. No, seriously, how many teams are so persistent at bottling it than Spurs? But if you're the best English striker of your generation, which he is, I'm ready to admit that now. It's only took seven years to win me over. There's absolutely no reason for you to be this one club man in an era of unprecedented transfer fees, right? And I, it just, it makes, I think he leaves. I absolutely think he leaves. I think that interview that he did with Gary Neville was pretty interesting because that, that to me felt very much like an exit interview, you know? That felt very much like this is where I'm at in my career right now. I'm being very forward about the fact that I want, I am exploring pastures new. Um, he was very complimentary of Kevin De Bruyne in that interview. If that means anything, he said that he's he's pretty forward in saying that he's going to have a honest conversation with Daniel Levy. And I think if you're Daniel Levy, you have a lot of priorities that you need to sort out this summer, and maybe one of those is how much money can I get from Harry Kane in order to allay some of the issues that we were talking about earlier financially when it comes to Spurs. You know, the worst thing for them to do is to keep Harry Kane, go and get another expensive manager. Obviously, no one will be as expensive for them as, as Jose Mourinho was, but and that doesn't work again, and they're having to shill out more money to try and fill gaps in the squad and pay another new manager to come in or pay more money to sack a manager. I just think they need to, either Kane is in and they spend money on a new manager, or Kane is out and they can spend that money rehabbing the squad, getting a manager in who, you know, maybe it's someone like Graham Potter who is a bit less expensive but has a very clear philosophy about what he wants to do. Maybe it's someone like Eric Ten Hag who would be a little bit more expensive but in the same vein in terms of uh, a manager that's very philosophic. Kane clearly wants out, and if I'm Daniel Levy, I go into that honest conversation saying 120 million, and that's probably yep. That is probably like what I'm going to accept for you in order to let you go. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think he could even say, look, 120 million plus 20 million more in bonuses or something, depending on you know how he does or how the team that purchases him does. I think. That's a pretty fair market value when you think about his age, his current contract length, um, you know, his market value, according to uh, Footmobe, is $135 million. So I think £120 million is probably fair. And I think that that sort of prices out pretty much all the teams except for the three that I mentioned. I do think that I, I could definitely see him succeeding at a club like Real Madrid. But again, striker is the last of their concerns right now. They have way too many other areas they, that they need to focus on. And and transferring in a player with the English tax, especially in La Liga, which does have that EU restriction, um, doesn't really check out for me. So I think there's a good chance that one of the three teams that are not Liverpool that finish in the top four this year wind up signing Harry Kane. I have questions about how he would fit in to Pep Guardiola's setup at City. But I mean it is sort of an intuitive replacement for the departure of a guy who I can comfortably say is the second greatest goal scorer in Premier League history. I think Spurs actually owe Harry Kane quite a bit. I think he could have very easily left for Real Madrid um, earlier on. I think he could have handed in a transfer request after losing the Champions League final. I don't know. I think he's definitely earned his right to sort of test the waters, if you will, if there's a team that's willing to pony up. I certainly think City is the place that he ends up. I think it's interesting that you talked about that he'd, he'd have to change his game from a, the, a style standpoint. I think some of that might be true. I also think it's really interesting that he won the Playmaker Trophy this season uh, for the highest number of assists in the Premier League. I think we've seen a way different Harry Kane in the past year, year and a half, who's more willing to drop back and get involved in the midfield, do a little bit more of that playmaking work, of that grunt work, uh, and winning the ball back too. It'd be an easier fit now to see him at City than maybe it would have been about two or three years ago. If there's a player that I could see City breaking their transfer policy for in terms of not spending you know, hundreds of millions of pounds on one player, it would be a player like Harry Kane because it would fill an immediate need for them in the vacuum of not having Sergio Aguero and not having to be reliant on Gabriel Jesus and you know using a false nine. You know, City 
want to be seen as a juggernaut, not only, you know, on the European stage worldwide, but I think there is a little bit of um, a subconscious thing where it's like they're kind of mocked in the English game for, you know, not being a traditional English juggernaut, maybe not being English enough. And I think, you know, signing the England captain in his prime would go a long way in, in allaying some of those concerns if you're a Man City supporter or, you know, affiliated with the club in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. Do you have any predictions on moves Liverpool makes or does not make oh, this man. summer? I think Champions League is so huge for Liverpool's, you know, transfer potential this summer. Obviously, it nets them the money from uh, being able to qualify for that competition. But I think just in terms of drawing power, it's huge. You know, Liverpool got a player like Thiago Alcantara off the back of, of winning the Premier League last season. And I think being able to build on the foundation that they've they've assembled from, you know, Jurgen Klopp's four past seasons at the club in which I think he's really, you know, assembled the spine of this team in terms of players like Allison and Fabinho, it's going to go a long way. Champions League qualification is going to go a long way to seeing players like Kanate come through the door. I think Liverpool definitely needs to re- replace Genie Wijnaldum, and that's going to be near impossible just considering how many jobs Wijnaldum did on the field for Liverpool. I could see them going after a player like Yves Basuma, uh, potentially even a player like Kamavinga, who I know has a reduced price because he's in the final year of his contract at Rennes. A real position of need for them is an out-and-out striker. No more messing around with, and I love these two players, Diogo Jota and Roberto Firmino, who both can put the ball in the back of the net. Obviously, we saw more of that from Jota this season. Firmino came on in a goal-scoring form at the end of the season. But I think they need a traditional striker who they can count on to start games when he needs to start games and come off the bench when Liverpool need to find a way to break down a team that sits deep in you know, a more direct fashion, I would say. I think those are all reasonable uh, predictions. I think from a, an outsider perspective, really it sort of just depends on how fast people can uh, recover from injury. I mean, clearly you have such a talented squad that's only going to get deeper. I mean, Liverpool, I think, are in a good position to succeed again next year. That, I think, will just about do it for this episode of Corner Kick. Should we read, Nick, do you want to read what Caleb said earlier to to sort of close us out for today? Right. So, obviously, the elephant in the room, Caleb Rhodes, is not here today. He'll be back for our post-Champions League final pod on Saturday. I think you can kind of tell that Nathan and I are also a little bit tired just because our lives have, you know, ramped up in the... The you know as we head off into the land of summer vacation and whatnot, but Caleb is not here because he in fact graduated from college uh, on Saturday, and he is off celebrating. He's having a lovely time, but he sent us this text today, and we we found it fitting that we should read it on the podcast because it seemed like a great life lesson, not only you know in terms of life, but also in terms of you know, we can kind of get bogged down in the turbulent and never-ending nature of the sport that that we all hold dear in soccer. So this is what he said. It reads, and I quote, Life can seem like a sprint where everything around you is a total blur, but there is always time to slow down and see where you actually are. We all need to improve at slowing down. So that is our charge to you, Corner Kick listeners. Wherever you are, take the time to slow down and look around you. And I think that's a fitting message, you know, as as we close our end of season pod here. Yeah, I think, I mean, this season, more than any season in a long time, like maybe actually, I think it's fair to say that this season, more than any season in my entire life, really tested me, both in the terms of this is the worst performing Arsenal side that I've ever been enamored with. Um, And I think we do as soccer fans sort of develop these parasocial relationships with our clubs. We're happy when they win, we're sad when they lose and we kind of invest a piece of ourselves in them. And when they do that poorly, it actually can be quite draining um, emotionally. And I think not just that, I think the super league, um, and it's 72 hours of glory 
really did a number on all of us as well. And it sort of sparked a lot of emotions that I think were pent up from a year of frustrating soccer and a year of frustrating life, um, you know, given everything that's happened. So I liked Caleb's advice. There, There is a sort of like pleasantness about soccer in that it's very rhythmic. Like next season, we know there's going to be 38 games and we know they're going to start in August, but life is not that predictable. So definitely fortunate to be along for the ride with the two of you and uh, looking forward to uh, another season of ups and downs. Yes, sir. I think just on that front, I think look, you have to look no further than our coverage of the Super League, which started on a Sunday and ended on a Tuesday or ended on a Wednesday. That was the longest three days. Holy shit. Exactly. And I think it's one of those things where it's like in a season that is, you know, so full of never ending drama, never ending coverage. You're you're reading reports about transfer rumors, about injuries, about upcoming matches. It is just even like this. We're not even going to get a break because, you know, 11 days after the Champions League final, we start the Euros. I think eventually if you are reliant on 11 dudes on the field to make you happy, I think it's time to to step back and really take a look around you as Caleb said and slow down a little bit absolutely I'm sure that we'll be back in some point in the next week to recap these finals that we predicted but until then I have been Nathan Strauss I have been Nick Vinden we will see you all next time